Now's a good time to thank our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions. There's a lot of great things about this relationship. Like us, Survivors for Solutions wants to see continued innovation in the pharmaceutical space. They embrace the free market and believe that the free market is the best solution to improve patient lives. It was founded by our close friend CZ or John Swartaki. CZ founded the group when he saw the damage that the Inflation Reduction Act was gonna bring to the pharmaceutical ecosystem. He's been a patient, and Eric, I think you'll talk about that in a minute, but he's been a patient for several decades himself, and he wants solutions not just for himself, but for his family and friends and for Americans in the future. And he knows how important it is for continued pharmaceutical innovation to happen here in the United States, because if it doesn't, it won't happen anywhere. Joe, you're right. CZ is a longtime friend of both of ours and a seasoned Washington pro. But what most people don't know is that John Swartaki has also suffered from multiple sclerosis for over 30 years. He was diagnosed and has required four different breakthrough drugs over the course of this disease in order to just live. All these drugs have been developed in a robust ecosystem of medical discovery and delivery an ecosystem that the Inflation Reduction Act and President Biden now threaten. That threatens the hope and security and safety, the liberty, and ultimately the lives of millions of Americans suffering from chronic, debilitating, or life-threatening disease. He formed Survivors for Solutions to help save this system so others like himself have the chance at a fulfilling and robust life. You can learn more about CZ and his lifelong struggle with multiple sclerosis from our March 27th DC EKG interview, plus his website, survivorsforsolutions.org, or on Twitter at Hope Matters Most. Joe, we're really fortunate. CZ is our leader here at DC EKG, and we look forward to advocating on his behalf and the behalf of millions of American patients in the years to come on our show. Welcome back to DC EKG with Joe Grogan and Eric Euland. We're joined by Paul Winfrey, DC budget and policy expert. Paul, when we, uh, at the end of our last segment, we were talking about growth and its relationship to revenue. And it sounded like you were saying, look, you can only, even in, if you raise taxes a bunch, you're going to depress growth and you're only going to get about three or four years of decent economic performance out of those increased rates or in, increased uh, burden in tax revenue. One other way of phrasing things that you, that was a little bit different uh, than other people describing, say, entitlements was this idea that the entitlement shouldn't be growing faster than the rate of economic growth. Frequently, people commenting on TV about entitlements or things like that will say faster than the rate of inflation. Are they saying the same things you were about economic growth or are they two different concepts? I mean, they're two different concepts. Inflation measures prices in the economy and growth measures the total uh, the, the entire economic pie. So why do people talk about inflation? Like it's a big problem that Medicaid grows faster. Why do they phrase it that way? That Medicaid or Medicare is growing faster than the rate of inflation. Cause it's the thing that, that, that touches people. They real, you know, they're, they're people are very sensitive to inflation. They understand when prices that they pay 
for a variety of products are going up. And ultimately, they respond to that politically. But I think that coming back to this other idea, I think there are two, I think there are two ways to, to look at this issue. I think one way is fairly pessimistic and the other way is much more optimistic. And that is, is that if, if what we're doing is only, you know, managing the, the decline of, the, of America as, it, as if it, our best days were behind us, then, you know, it, it makes sense to get into this, you know, policy discussion of, on redistribution, right? It's like, if we've got a fixed pot and all we're trying to figure out how to do is how to allocate that pot to, you know, people who, who you know, most need the resources, then, then, you know, then that's one way of looking at the world. Uh, honestly, I don't think that's a pretty, I don't think that's a fairly productive way to look at the world. No, I think Washington rather, is so seized with that mindset. So seized with that mindset. Exactly. I think, I think it's, I think it's much more productive to think about what are the drivers of an abundant economy? How can we grow the overall size of the economy? And that's a totally different paradigm. And that comes back to, like I said, there's a lot that you can do on tax uh, that would, I, I think, grow the economy. There's also and a lot you can do on have that feedback, right? Growth drives right. revenue rates, not, as Joe said, Democrats wanting to just pop the top rate and go after all the income they can find. That's exactly right. There's only so much you can do with that, right? And uh, and 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 at the end, like I said, it's just it's a very different way of 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 looking at the world. And I think as we go into the 2024 presidential cycle, you know, not to sound too political here, but I think that 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 Biden and as you mentioned, many people on on the left on the Hill in particular are stuck in that first mindset, stuck in the first pessimistic mindset, which creates an opportunity for someone else to come along and create a new paradigm, create a new vision for, 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 wh for where we can go and ultimately lay out a policy agenda that represents an, an abundant growing economy that lifts everybody up. Right. We are the change. They are more of the same. Right. Totally agree. And thanks for this conversation. I know that you've got a broad span of interests, and I want to turn a little bit now to AI. Yeah. This is something you've had experience with uh, yeah. professionally and personally. So I want to start uh, the discussion kind of uh, related to our previous conversation about mindset. There's a lot of people out there apprehensive yeah. about AI. There are some people who see promise in AI. Tell us, if you would, first kind of how you define artificial intelligence your experience of it, and then, like I said, your perspective on where we might be going with AI here in the next 10 or 20 years. So I think that, so first of all, AI or machine learning is just a tool, okay? And I think right now we are at that stage as a culture where more people are being exposed to AI or machine learning or these large language models, and they see the change that that could bring about without really being able to comprehend how it's going to, to help them, right? As time goes on, folks will learn how to adopt and adapt to these new tools that, that we're all now able to access. And that has the ability to create a tremendous amount of productivity, new productivity in the economy 
that can that can increase that can increase growth. I see a lot of really exciting things happening on on the AI front. So in medicine in particular, I think that there's a real opportunity for physicians and other people in the in the medical community to again think about how to use this new tool not to not to replace work that's currently being done or replace them uh, in the workforce, but rather to increase their own productivity, right? To 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 uh, to complement what they're already doing and ultimately in, in, improve medicine. I was last night. I had dinner with uh, a handful of journalists, and you know, and I thought it was really interesting because they brought up AI to me. And I said, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not really worried that AI is going to replace the journalism industry. And they, and they, 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 their comment to me was, how can you be so flippant? How do you know that we're going to still have jobs in five years? And I said, you know, look, I, you know, if you look at how AI is integrating with language models, these large language models, there's a, there's a major difference between, um, uh, what these things are doing and how humans uh, have evolved to deal with to 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 integrate language into our own functioning. So, and what I mean by that is, is that if you take a um, you know we've all got dogs. I've got a dog here at home with me. If you take my dog, my dog is 15 years old. Um, she's listened to me talk for 15 years. And yet she still can't speak English, right? And the reason that she can't speak English is because the dog doesn't know how to put the basic, you know, concepts that we know of as language into practice, right? AI, these LLMs, are a lot like the dog. At the same time, my children, I have three kids, all of my kids, by the time that they're two years old, have integrated the basic concept of language into their into their functioning into their brains right they can communicate with me uh it might not be sophisticated but they but they can do it and we all we all know we all know what each, each other are doing and like so if you take these llms yes if you give it prompts it can come up with interesting things but at the same time if you give it basically trash it'll give you trash back right it hasn't it doesn't know how to um, come up with these basic concepts of language and then feed them back to us. And so in my, in my view, these LLMs in particular and AI in general is like I said, it's just a tool and it does represent a lot of change. And sometimes that change can be scary. And sometimes people respond to that scariness by asking policymakers to, you know, regulate some of that change out of existence. Uh, I think we need to take a step back and ask ourselves how we can use these new tools to increase our own productivity, to make uh, to make ourselves better at the jobs that we're doing. So is that the key question you think should be in front of Congress, which yes. is floating around pretty heavily now yes. with writing a piece of legislation that might regulate, might accelerate, might decelerate AI's development and ultimately its integration into the economy, or is it more likely than not that Congress and, and the Biden administration might take choices when it comes to AI that actually curtail its ability to be as promising as you've laid out? I would hope that they would do the latter and not the former. Uh, I think that one of the differences between AI or machine learning 
and the rest of the tech space is that we've had a we've had a ton of evolution in the tech space over the last you know 40 years as, as we all know i mean we're doing this podcast Course all over the world right now right right and and yeah. so most tech technology that's been developed in this space over that period has been done at relatively low capital costs right you know like you with a computer and some basic knowledge can sit in your parents basement and create a company that creates a tremendous amount of wealth for the world um one of the differences between that system and AI is that uh, machine learning really does require some access to, to, to make it really good to quantum computing. And quantum computing is really expensive and requires a tremendous amount of energy. And so one of the things that I worry about is that the uh, folks who are at the forefront of machine learning and quantum computing right now uh, will go to policymakers and say, you know, look, I have this special access, you know, based on who I am and my privilege to the system that allows me to create this thing. Oh, by the way, it could, it might also be scary. Therefore, you should regulate me because I have, you know, the ability to spend $100 million on compliance every year. Well, hasn't <laughs> and, that, and it's already started. And it's already I mean, started. You know, exactly. the, the first movers are saying, you know what, how about we pull the ladder up and screw everybody behind me? Exactly. Exactly. And so like, but this is, and, and this is sort of a corollary issue. If I'm right, and that quantum computing and access to quantum computing uh, is important for everyone to have access to this new technology to figure out how it can better improve our own productivity, then that makes energy production really, really important, right? Which is why we, we also need to focus on what we can do on the, de, on the deregulation front to make sure that we all have access to cheaper energy sort of across, across, across the board, which won't only improve our productivity on this front, but will improve our productivity on many other fronts too. Can I toggle back for a second here yeah. to go up down a, down a rabbit hole uh, perhaps? Um, I know something that maybe not a lot of people know, which is your first job was as a child laborer making uh, coopers and making <laughs> barrels in uh, in Colonial Williamsburg. Yeah. You've been talking about the future yeah. and you learned a uh, craft, yeah. a trade as a young, uh, as a child. I think your father was a professor at William & Mary. Uh, you learn anything about economics from that experience and now looking ahead towards AI, there's been a little bit of disruption in the coopering business over over the last few hundred years. My joke is, is that when the end times come, I'll have a skill that I can rely on. You know, <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I'll be able to make barrels for people. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think that, that, that well, at a at a very personal level, one of the things that working as a child laborer in Williamsburg as a Cooper's apprentice um, provided me with was a tremendous amount of experience in talking to people who had no idea what we were doing about sort of complicated concepts. Um, you know, a, a you know a normal I think ten year old just doesn't get that opportunity, which was really cool uh, for me. Um, but yes, it gave me a real appreciation for both skill development and then also how things have changed over time and how we're still 
okay, even though those things have changed over time. So one of the so there there again there there's a whole subset of people who are I think more pessimistic than I am. And one of the comments that they'll often you know bring up is, yes, we can all afford you know we can all you know uh, better afford cars today than we could a hundred years ago. But you know there there are people who would rather just ride horses everywhere, and you know and and so maybe they're worse off than I'm I'm, I'm serious guys like this is an actual argument that gets made by people, and so maybe they're worse off because they're not able to ride horses down this the street anymore. Well, the reality is, is that as transportation costs have fallen. And we're now able to get on planes and go virtually anywhere in a reasonable amount of time. And, you know, I, I'm not saying plane tickets are affordable by everyone, but they're much more affordable than they were 50 years ago. The cost of all transportation has fallen, including the price of horses. So if you actually want to buy a horse, it's now more affordable than it was 50 years ago, just because everything has improved. And, and I think that there's, I think that there's something, there's something to that. And it gets back to your, your comment earlier, Joe, about, about why things are often put in terms of, of prices and inflation, you know, as the price of goods has become cheaper over time, that does allow us to work less, afford more. And ultimately, if we so choose to spend more time with our family or, or, or doing other things that we like, uh, without working as hard as, as we once did, you know, I mean, one of the things that, um, you know, has stuck with me and I, I like to tell, you know, my older sons, this, who, you know, who just absolutely ignore me, but you know, the, the, the middle-class family in Virginia, uh, uh, in the colonial period around 1780, 1790 was living in a 15 by 10 foot wooden shack. That's what we would think of it today. Uh, if you were upper middle class, you had a wooden floor. If you were lower middle class, you had a dirt floor. And virtually no one had glass windows, right? When it was cold, you put uh, you put wood in the in the slots that you cut out in your in your in your wooden house. And um, and I think that you know, I mean, people often make comparisons. If you took a you know a a, a king of England from the 1300s and brought them to today, they they wouldn't understand the level of opulence that we have. And I think that that is easy to take for granted. It really, it really, really is. And, um, and you know, but again, comes back to why this, this, uh, this more optimistic approach, this, uh, this concept of abundance for new generations is important. And it really should help guide where policy goes. Well, unfortunately, we wanted to talk about the, uh, your, your, PhD thesis and the book that you've written and get into that. So we'll have to have you back yeah. uh, at another point in the future. But this is a great conversation. Uh, and I just want to thank you for joining us on behalf of Eric Euland and myself, Paul. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Looking forward to it. You bet. DCEKG, produced with Big Wig Media and our distribution partner, Evergreen. We're out of the studio and more relaxed. Let us know what you think in comments, emails, or grabbing us on the street along the way. I'm Eric Ulan, along with Joe Grogan. Thanks so much. <laughs>